This morning is June 17, 2007. Our message this morning is called Gilgal in Jericho. And uh, it's, of course, Father's Day this morning. And uh, it's a baptism Sunday this morning. And it's got birthdays going on and all kind of neat things. Where's Patricia in here somewhere? Okay. Well, got all kind of neat things happening. I want to touch on Father's Day for a minute. Uh, I'm fortunate enough to have my father joining us by camera here, and uh, I love you, Daddy. He came into my life at a time when I needed him. I was not his blood child. You know, I was born to someone else. But he adopted me and loved me just like I was. That's a picture of Jesus. That's a picture of Jesus that's worth noting on Father's Day. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that during difficult times in my mother's life, there was a seed of hope that there was something better than what this world had to offer because I'm the first fruits of that hope. And I'm thankful for that this morning. When Jesus taught us to pray, when He gave us something to consider about how we pray, the Jews were intimately familiar with prayer. They prayed the Shema, they prayed the Amidah. These are beautiful, beautiful prayers. If you put in the name of Jesus after them, you would think that they were written today by a Spirit-filled Christian. And yet something felt lacking. And the disciples asked Jesus, how do we pray? And you all know how this goes, and you can pray it with me. He said, you pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. When Jesus came to teach us to pray, He taught us to relate to God, the Creator of the universe, as our Father. Not just a creator, not just an originator, but a very personal thing. Paul picks up on that theme in Romans and says, the spirit we have cries out, Abba, Father, which is a very personal way to say Daddy God. So today, as much as we honor our earthly fathers, we realize they were just a picture of our heavenly Father. Even for those of you that didn't have a good picture, thank you, God, for giving you something. Because we're going to talk about baptism this morning, I thought we would go to the book of Joshua because it's all about baptism, right? Of course not. <laughs> Let's go to the book of Joshua. I enjoyed Mandy's testimony. I enjoyed Johnny Lang's song. I enjoyed my wife's prophecy today during uh, the worship service. I enjoy that I came in low in a few moments in the house of God and I feel like I could soar. I enjoy that. I like that God takes broken down garages and makes church buildings and broken down people and makes saints. I like that our God is in the recycling business. It gives me hope. While Mandy was preaching, the word Gilgal came to me. I had been reading this morning about Gilgal and uh, she changed my message. So uh, you'll get blessed by that here in just a minute. Y'all in Joshua 3? God begins to speak to this man 
who in Hebrew's name is Yehoshua. Very, very similar to Yeshua. It means Yahweh's salvation. And in Joshua 3, verse 7, God speaks and says to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all of Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters and go and stand in the river. I'm sorry. When you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. God had a plan to exalt a man named Joshua. He wanted to lift him up as an example, as a leader for all the people who were called priests with God. That's what Israel means. God wanted this man to be somebody that they could take courage in, follow his example, walk in his footsteps, so to speak. And so he had a plan. And part of that plan is that he would cause all Israel to cross the Jordan River. Now, the Jordan's an interesting thing in the Bible. It almost always represents Jesus. It's the thing that Naaman the Syrian can dip himself in and be cleansed of his diseases. It's the thing that you have to pass through to enter into the promised land. It is so many beautiful things in the Bible. But is it any surprise that when God wants Israel to cross, it's at flood stage? It looks as if it can't be crossed. Of course, the Psalms say that God sits enthroned above the floodwaters. Our popular songs say things like, He's our bridge over troubled waters. God brings us to places in life, and baptism is one of these that is like this, where you realize that without God's help, you just wouldn't make it. Without God's help, you would be swept away. And more than that, there's a desire in your heart that wants Him to be lifted up as the only reason that you are making it. Wow, there's a duck in here. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Wow, how about that? Y'all forget about that. <laughs> If Judah was not upstairs sick, he'd go kill that thing for me. He wants you to be aware that it's at these flood stages of life when you're crying out that there is only one way that you pass through these waters that would otherwise kill you, and it's because Joshua or Jesus has been lifted up in your life. That's the testimony of baptism. We say that it's an outward sign of an inward change. The water doesn't save you. The water is merely a testimony. Turn with me to Joshua 4. Good girl. Cassidy's the only one there, though. In Joshua 4. So Joshua called together twelve men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, Go over before the ark of the Lord your God and into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of Israelites to serve as a sign among you in the future. When your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord when you crossed it. Baptism is like a sign that you will carry with you forever. I was worshiping next to Craig, and as that song on that great day, as we began to worship that song, I could hear him praying to God going back in his mind and in his thoughts to the day that he was baptized. Baptism is supposed to be a day for you where you can mark in history. Not that just you were a little kid that wanted to do what your parents thought, but as an adult or at least as somebody functioning 
in a reasoning capacity, your desire was to make a statement to all of the world that the floodwaters of life were not going to hold you down. Jesus was carrying you through and He would be exalted in your life. This is why most of the time when people are baptized very, very young, and it's good, it's a dedication, it's a pledge, they want to get baptized later. So, well, why? Does that invalidate the first? Not at all. There is a child's commitment and there is a man's commitment. And I came to a place in life when I realized that the childish commitment was inadequate. And I wanted to make a man's commitment before God. Now, I've always been impatient. I grabbed Piro by the shoulder and said, please, baptize me. He said, can we do that? I said, we're going to. We marched right out to the swimming pool of the apartment complex at 9.30 on a Saturday morning and the bikinis ran as we touched the water. It was funny. I wanted to make a public statement in the biggest possible way of what Jesus was doing in my life. Now, the amazing thing is that not only you think, well, that's just an evangelistic idea. No, it protects me. (laughs) How does it protect you? How could baptism protect you? When you make a bold statement everywhere you go that you have been bought by Jesus, that the old guy is dead and you're walking in a new life, what do people do? They try to hold you to that standard. I'm somebody that enjoys that. I need your help. (laughs) Me and Joe Cocker, a little help from our friends. Look at Joshua 4.14. That thing keeps turning my pages. Joshua 4.14. That day the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of Israel. And they revered him all the days of his life. When this happens in people's lives, when they begin to cry out to God and they want to show it through some act publicly, it is something that causes people to revere God's work in your life. Now that shows up in different ways. Sometimes it's disdain. So, well, how can revere be disdain? I'll show you how. Let's suppose that Matthew is being baptized, right? And the pricking in my heart is that I need to do something. But I don't have the courage to do it, and he does. I can either admire him or hate him for doing it. Come on now, can you all not relate to that at all? I want to tell you the truth. One of the reasons that I got saved when I did was two men that I loved very dearly that I knew were better men than me in every sense of the word went down and fell on their face at an altar to be saved. Now, we were all thought we were Christians. Something about that put me in the position of needing to admire them or disdain them. There was a little of both at first. I persecuted you a little bit when you got saved, didn't I, Matthew? Maybe more than a little bit since we're being honest this morning. But it never left my thoughts. Baptism is something that's public. Look at verse uh, 4.24. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. There's something about the statement in our lives that says there is still a dead guy here, but we're counting him dead. We're counting him submerged in the waters. Romans 6 talks about and doesn't mention. (laughs) I'm dancing around that because... I have a very strong view of baptism as a submersion picture. People can argue all day long, though, about whether the Jews submerged or sprinkled or all of those things. It makes no difference to me. I'll sprinkle you and submerge you and shower you and dunk you. and It makes no difference. What matters to me is the pledge of a clean conscience towards God. 
And the reason that I choose to merge it is, is not so that we can argue over Greek and Hebrew words. It's because you were completely, totally, utterly plunged in the floodwaters of death. And were it not for God pulling you out of that grave, you would have no hope. And I just think it's a better picture. The truth is, is if it wouldn't be identified with some cult because I already have so many things like that in my life, I would baptize you in a watery grave, literal grave. But that'd be kind of yucky. And these days I'm kind of a pansy. I don't like to get yucky. So we baptized in clean, chlorine swimming pools instead of Jordan Rivers. During the worship service, during Mandy's testimony, something came to me. So this became Jericho and Gilgal. That was not planned. Let me tell you about Gilgal. Israel crosses through the Jordan that is like a baptism. It's a public statement that if our God leads us through the floodwaters, through the floodwaters we will go. We're facing the kingdom of the world, Jericho, on the other side, but we will no longer be disobedient and turn back like our forefathers did. Today, if God says go through, we go through, and we will carry stones of testimony with us so that when our children ask us, why did you do such a silly thing? Such a stupid thing. Such a scary thing. And you'll have the opportunity to tell them about how you trusted God and it made all the difference in your life ever since. Come on, this ought to be resonating some. Something else begins to happen. When you make this kind of public statement, this inward searching, all of a sudden this responsibility comes upon you. You've told the whole world you're not just playing church anymore. You are serving Jesus. And all of a sudden this introspection starts to happen. For Israel, it happens at a place called Gilgal starting in the fifth chapter, first verse. Now, when the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanites king along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had crossed over, their hearts melted, and they no longer have the courage to face the Israelites. Isn't it funny? The enemy will taunt you. The enemy will intimidate you until he figures out that you are truly serious. As long as you play church, friends, all you are is a target. You got to play toy gun, and the enemy dances on you. And that's why most of the church runs around acting like we can't help but sin. Because they're just not serious about Jesus. The moment you have the attitude that says, if it costs me my life, I will follow Jesus, the enemy's heart begins to melt within him. He knows that there is no power on earth, not even death, that will hold you down. Because the resurrecting power of Jesus is in you. That's why it's important that we all come to a point in our life where you have decided, not just acknowledged, not just promised, but you have decided that nothing on this earth will hold you back from serving Jesus. One of the biggest detriments to many of your walks is that you've been raised around the fire so long you can sleep right next to it. Thank you, Jesus. I didn't have that experience. I was in lukewarm churches and stuff. I'd never seen fire. The first time I came into contact with this spiritual Holy Ghost type charismatic movement, I was amazed. I couldn't believe it. I felt like I'd been missing something all of my life. Guys, we need a burning bush experience. You need it. You need it. You need your own encounter with God that leaves you never again the same. It's been happening for thousands of years. He said, well, Eric, don't you impose your experiences on me. I'm not. I'm telling you to go find your own. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. Scripture in light of Scripture here. I'm going to explain that in a minute. But first time I read this, I want to be honest, made me a little squeamish. I went, ooh, you know, 
we whittling that thing down? <laughs> What's happening here? It's all right. You can laugh in church. I want you to circumcise the Israelites again. Huh. Let's talk about circumcision while I have your attention. Go to Colossians 2. I do have your attention, don't I? Tell me when the rest of you are there. Yeah, I'm still working on it too. I'm happy for the AC, but it is wreaking havoc upon me. Colossians 2, starting in verse 9. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. That's pretty well my statement about the Trinity, by the way. Somebody asked me that Wednesday. Anyway. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In Him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism and raised with Him through your faith in the power of God who raised Him from the dead. You can only be circumcised in the flesh one time. <laughs> they cut something off, they remove it, and you don't have it anymore to cut off again. But friends, I want to tell you something. You can be circumcised in this way of the Spirit, the removing of the sinful nature, every day of your life. In fact, you better be. Israel set out from Egypt. They were all circumcised. You cannot participate in the Passover without being circumcised or you're put to death. So what happened? Their parents were disobedient to the promises of God. And they didn't teach their children by circumcising their children. There's all kinds of reasons for it. Maybe they thought they had arrived. They were being delivered into the promised land. Maybe they just didn't want to do it. I don't know. Moses had that little problem and his wife corrected it. But when they got baptized, they started to look into their hearts again and they realized something needs to happen here. I've made a public profession that we're the people of God. All the kingdoms of the world are watching. There needs to be a putting off of the sinful nature a casting away of the flesh. Romans 8, 12-18 begins to speak about this same thing. It talks about being led by the Spirit, not being obliged to the sinful nature. Gilgal. You want to know how they got circumcised again? Israel as a nation. As a nation, they were circumcised once, all the men in it. Then they had children, a whole generation that raised up, and those children were not circumcised. So Israel, the nation, got circumcised again. Doesn't that make you feel better? Yeah, me too. <laughs> this is a hard teaching. Who can understand it? <laughs> At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeah, Harioloth. Heal the foreskins. Wow. Now this is why I did so. He goes on to explain exactly what I've just told you. Verse 7. So he raised up their sons in their place and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. This next part is why I'm talking about Gilgal. So you all pay very careful attention to this. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today... I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this day. 
Gilgal means to roll away. What is supposed to happen when you get baptized, when you cross through the floodwaters that would have otherwise killed you, but because God is exalting Jesus in your life, you are trusting Him, carrying the testimony that He will carry you through death and back to conquer new kingdoms and new worlds. You get to a place where you have to make this testimony real. He starts to dig deep. You're not just, as Mandy said, washing the stains off your driveway, but as each stain's removed, you notice how dirty the places you thought were clean next to where the stain is removed is. Have you not noticed that as you're serving Jesus, you're in love with Him, you're more conscious of your sin than you were when you were lost? The first thing that happens to people when they get born again, I mean, very first thing, all of a sudden they can't watch movies they used to watch. They throw away music, clothes that they think are on and on and on. You are impressed with this clear distinction between what you think is good and evil. As time goes on, we call it maturing. We ought to rethink that maybe. We start to learn that not everything we thought was bad is bad. And start talking about moderation and all kind of other things. But it is a good process that happens at Gilgal. You know why? This is when... What is the reproach of Egypt, by the way? Do you think it's slavery? Israel didn't do anything wrong to be enslaved. God said they would go and be enslaved. It's not like when they went into Babylon because it was disobedience. What's the reproach of Egypt? The reproach of Egypt is while they were leaving to go to the promised land that God had called them to, just like when you got saved, the enemies, probably relatives, (laughs) said, oh no, this will never last. It won't work. And many times along the way, it didn't look like it was going to work because of Israel's disobedience. Moses has gone on a mountain for a little while. What do they do? Have a little party with an Egyptian calf, right? They get to a place where the water's bitter. What do they do? They whine. They get to a place that things are hard, and what do they do? The same thing you do. Whine and talk about going back to Egypt. So the reproach of Egypt remained upon them the whole time they were walking and saying they were saved. That call from Egypt that said, you'll never make it, you won't make it, and their parents didn't make it. But at the place that they stood up, crossed through the Jordan, introspectively looked into their hearts to cast off the sinful nature and were walking in obedience, suddenly the reproach of Egypt fell off them like charred flax, like the chains that fell off Johnny Lang in that song. Like the prison that had bound me until 1993 when it fell off me. Friends, you've got to get to a place where this thing is serious for you. What is the miracle at Gilgal? What's beautiful about Gilgal? It's where the reproach rolls away. It's when you've decided that the favor of the Father outweighs the favor of your brothers. And you don't care what they think or say anymore. All you care about is pleasing the Father. It was a freeing thing for Joseph to be thrown in a well. He no longer had to be concerned about what his 11 brothers thought of his life. He just had to be concerned with what God thought. And it was difficult. But did it end well for him? I would say it did. Wouldn't you? Go with me to Joshua 5. You're in Joshua 5, aren't you? Let's look at Joshua 6. By the way, they celebrated the Passover right after they had their rededication through baptism and circumcision. 
They had already passed over. They had passed over some 40 years before. What are they doing? They're renewing their commitment. They're celebrating what Jesus has done for them. That's what we do every time we take communion. It's what we're supposed to be doing every time we take communion. I know we've been taught various religious rituals about it. It is a celebration of a Passover that happened for them 1,600 years before Jesus and happened for us on the cross. You know why they did the Passover every year? So that their children would ask them what's the meaning of all of this and they could teach their children. God never intended for our commitments and our statements to be hollow things. He intended for our creeds to be our deeds. In fact, the Jews never prided themselves on having creeds of any kind. They pride themselves on living their faith by what they do. And that's why James wrote that. And that way we could all become a little more Jewish. Here's an important concept. In verse 13 of chapter 5. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Isn't that what all of it boils down to? We want to know in each situation, God, are you with me or against me in this? Are you with me or against me in this? Lord, my son's sick. Is this because you're trying to teach me something or is this the devil coming against me? Lord, I can't find a job. Is this because you're standing against me trying to teach me something or is this because the devil's preventing me and I need to push through? Have you all never been in that place? In fact, the God that we call our Lord, that we're intimate with, that His Spirit's in us, the easiest decision in the world ought to be able to determine is this the devil's work or is this God's work? And yet you'll spend your whole life trying to make that determination in different areas, won't you? It's through constant maturing, learning, studying the Scripture that you're able to know and approve of what God's pleasing and perfect will is. Joshua asks a question to this man standing there. Are you for me or are you for my enemies? I want you to think about that though. How self-centered is that? Are you for me? Or are you for my enemies? Say, well, it doesn't seem very self-centered. We're going into battle. I just want to know if he's on my side. Turn with me. You keep your finger there. But turn with me to 2 Chronicles. 15th chapter. Here's a concept that the charismatic church needs to cram right down its throat. And I say that as a proud member of whatever charismatic zoo we're in. Fifteen, verse one, Second Chronicles fifteen, verse one. The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, son of Oded. He went out to Asa and said to him, Listen to me, Asa and all of Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek Him, He will be found by you. But if you forsake Him, He will forsake you. Joshua says, hey, are you for me or are you for my enemies? Let's read the answer in light of what we just read there. Neither, he replied, but as commander of the Lord's army, or the army of the Lord, I have now come. Sometimes what we do is we have a will for our lives, we have a way for our lives. We've been baptized, a public testimony, we've told everybody we're born again, we feel born again most of the time, but the truth is, we still simply want to add God's blessing to our will. We have a battle plan. We have a plan of attack, and we want God to bless our plans. 
The Bless Me Gospel is all over the nation. The most popular books are sold based on this premise. I call it the Gospel of Gain. It is basically saying, Lord, I want You to be for me. I want you to understand something. God is not for you in that way. He is for you when you are for Him. Joshua does not get a glowing endorsement, although God has told him, cross the Jordan, take the stones up, circumcise the people, you're going to attack Jericho. He does not get a glowing endorsement from this angel. This angel does not say, yes, Joshua, I'm with you wherever you go. I'll be with man. I'll bless everything you do. He says, neither. I'm here representing God. There needs to be a struggle in the leadership of your heart. You've got to make up your mind once and for all. It is not enough to ask God to go with you. You have to decide that you've given up your battle plan and will go with God. That's the heart of the Gospel. That's what it means for Him to be Lord. But it is a subtle difference in a tricky thing in our hearts. We have a fine way of calling our will God's will. You see people hurt and broken. And when you talk to them about why, they say, well, God's way didn't work for me. <laughs> Friends, that's not possible. What that is a clear and present admittance of is I did my own thing and called it God. But you see it all of the time. I talked with a man who said, I got married one time and I did it my way and the marriage failed and I was wrong. And I got married a second time and I did it God's way and the marriage failed. God didn't, it didn't work. When I responded to Him, He hung up on me. I wonder why. It is not possible for God's way to fail. That's what makes Him God. What we need to do is be honest and not lay at the feet of the Lord our own failed desires. What we're supposed to do is come to Him with ashes and say, Lord, my battle plan has not worked so well. Here it is. And He bestows upon you something beautiful. That's what Isaiah taught about. What Ron Canoli and Crystal Lewis sing about. Touches my heart every time. Because I know what it is to be a tremendous failure in lots of ways. And yet the Lord makes me a success. It's because I'm not asking Him to be for me. I'm pledging that I will be for Him. And I'm spending my life trying to find the difference. It's a careful distinction, saints, but it is so important. It's the difference between making or missing the kingdom, to be honest. When you're asking God to be for you, you're asking Him to join you in your kingdom. When you accept His battle plan, do it His way. Throw off your desires. You have made Him king of you, and you've joined His kingdom. What a simple distinction, and yet I have a feeling that that small difference in the Hebrew language is where most people in Christianity have missed becoming what they were meant to be. Let's examine this battle plan. By the way, Joshua falls face down and says, what message does my Lord have for His servant? That's the right response. When is the last time you got before God and felt good and corrected and came away with a new direction and message? Man, if that is not happening... You may need to go get that pressure washer Mandy was talking about. If you have the attitude that you're God's man of power for the hour, He blesses everything that you say, everything that you do, I want to submit to you that maybe you've thought more of yourself than you should. I believe in the message that says you're seated at the right hand with Jesus in heavenly realms like Ephesians says. I believe in the message that says all the power of God fills you. 
All the power of the universe is at your disposal, used at God's discretion. I believe all those things. I teach it all the time. But you need not be fooled in thinking God blesses everything that you do. That is not true. That is not right. And it's what's wrong when we look around. So I was raised by Christian parents in a Christian home. Were you? Why? Because they went to church? Having God's battle plan, doing it God's way, is what makes a success. Not asking God to join you in your affairs. You understand? It is. I hope we find a way to live it. The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And Joshua did so. Real similar to Moses' experience, huh? Now Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Gilgal means the reproaches rolled away. Jericho means a pleasing fragrance. That's odd. You understand why Gilgal means reproach rolled away, don't you? This is a place where they got to a place in their walk where reproach was rolling away. Why on earth would Jericho mean a pleasing aroma? It is the kingdom that is symbolic of the world. I mean... Inside of its walls are every kind of filth that there can be. In fact, God has brought His people there to overthrow it because it's defunct. So why would it be called the pleasing aroma? Because the God we serve calls the things that are not as though they were. When He looks at you, He does not see what is. He sees what you can be. Saints, the mixture in this message that you need to get is that when you look in the mirror, you need not to have a self-loathing attitude You need to get your heart right and say, I'm going to be with you, God, no matter what, and then see yourself as what He has called you. I'm not trying to beat you down into the dirt. I'm trying to get you to look at your lives with sober judgment. Quit playing. Quit pretending. Stand up and be real. Maybe for the first time in your lives, look in the mirror and say, God, I'm sorry that I've been trying to lead you around. What do you want me to do? You ever prayed for something you really want? Oh, I don't know, like a 1999 Chevy Extended Cab with a 350 in it and leather seats and six-disc changer when those were not in every car. You ever pray for something like that? How quickly can you convince yourself it's God's will for you to have it? I can tell you, for me, it took about two weeks. About six weeks for Him to break me of it. We have a fine way of justifying what we want. Invoking the Lord's name in whatever we want to do. The hardest thing that you will ever do is scrape out your sinful nature and take on God's will for your life. Speaking of that, I'm all over the place this morning, but it'll start to make sense. They're going to do something at Jericho. This is called the shofar. The meanings for it are different depending on where you read, but they range from bright and clear like a distinct call, to hollow. You know why hollow? The way you make a shofar is you take a ram, a king of the sheep, who's been given a special crown that designates him as different than all the other sheep. And you wrench his crown from his head. And he has this substance in here called keratin. It's what your fingernails are made out of. You ever had a hangnail? Oh, right? 
and he has blood and some flesh in here. And the way you begin to make a shofar is after tearing his crown off of his head, you start to scrape out the flesh and pour out the blood. And when you get down to the keratin, you've done your job. You hollow this ram's horn out. Then you make a hole in this end and you bevel it. You bevel it so that people that can do it can blow like a trumpet. And when the ruach that is in you, the breath of God, or the Greeks call it the pneumos, go through this hollowed out circumcised ram's horn, it sounds a clear, pleasing, bright call before God. In fact, it says something about a salvation message. Look at that some more. Verse 2. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. Isn't it just like God said, I've delivered him into your hands before anything's happened? (laughs) Abraham, I give you the whole world, man. You don't own anything except a grave plot, but I give it all to you. Joshua, I give you all of Jericho. It's yours. Doesn't feel very much like it's mine yet, Lord. They don't seem to be running out saying, what must I do to be saved? I don't see the walls falling. They still had to have pretty big, impressive armies up there. What does that put you in the position of doing? Trusting Him. The only thing that will ever please God that you can possibly do in your entire life is not hurt yourself, not bounce with weights on yourself up to some rat god temple or any weird Eastern religion thing. It's trusting. He is looking for you to trust Him. You know where the biggest trust comes in your life? When you give up your battle plan and accept His and it does not look like it would work. Lord, how am I going to feed my family? If I don't have health insurance, what do I do when my kids are sick? Oh, you want me to trust you. I'm not telling you what your battle plan should be. I'm telling you it needs to be the Lord's. March around the city once with all of the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets. That word trumpet is not trumpet. It's shofar. A hollowed out ram's horn. Something that's had its blood emptied out and its flesh torn away. So that it would be a fitting instrument to sound a clear call The only way it sounds a clear call is when it is filled with the Spirit of God. And then it sounds a clear call to the city that represents the kingdom of the world. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priest blowing trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout then the wall of the city will collapse and every man will go straight in. Let's be honest. We're going to declare war on Missouri City today. Sugar Land against... Uh Uh-oh, we have spies in our midst. we got people from Missouri City. We're going to declare war on Rosenberg today. The Brazos River stands between you and Rosenberg. God says, don't you worry about it. When you step your foot in the water, the water will separate. Yeah. Can I use the bridge? No, you can't use the bridge. Okay, Lord. Then you get to the other side, and what they want of you? To cut away some of yourself, the most sensitive parts. Boy, he knows how to do that, doesn't he? 
okay, Lord, I'm with you now. Now I want you to attack Rosenberg, the walled city, without a sword. I want you to do it without chariots. In fact, here is your weapon. A hollowed out ram's horn that you're going to fill with the Spirit of God so that it sounds a call to him. Let's be honest. What would you want to do with this shofar? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I need a bigger shofar, Lord! And he says, no, no, it needs to have no beauty or majesty to draw you to it. It can't stand a head taller than all the others. You just get a shofar. Regular old plain shofar. Said, but Lord, I could... He said, man, you don't know what spirit you're of when you keep saying that, Eric. And I start to get it. God's going to do something supernatural, something beyond my abilities. How many days? Well, there are six days where we work and then we have a Sabbath. God made the whole world in six days and then He rested. How many Jewish feasts are there? Seven. In the seventh month, we start with Rosh Hashanah. You just happen to blow a shofar like this. How many times? Seven. And then what happens? In Jericho, the walls fall. In Israel, every man is atoned for. You think God could be trying to teach us something. You think maybe when you read the story of Jericho, it's more than an allegory. Do you think maybe you're getting the battle plan for how God will overcome the world? You'll take the king of the sheep who perfectly poured out his blood, who allowed himself to be circumcised inwardly like the true Jew that he is. He would be so filled with the Spirit of God that his call would go out every day of man's existence. And when the Sabbath day came, the kingdom of the world would fall to the kingdom of God. You think maybe that's what he was trying to teach? Oh, I don't know. We have seven signs in the book of Revelation. We have seven seals. We have seven lampstands. We have seven feasts. Fred pointed out to me Wednesday that one of the most important things in all of Jewish life, most important commandment, is the fourth about the Sabbath. So I started thinking about the Sabbath. You have a Sabbath after how many days? It's on the seventh. The seventh day is the Sabbath. But you don't just have Sabbaths of days, do you? You have Sabbaths of weeks that you celebrate. You don't just have Sabbaths of weeks. You have Sabbaths of months. And you have Sabbaths of years. We call that a jubilee. This principle of six days where the clear call must be sounded. It must go out to all of the earth. No warfare. None of your own effort. Only the Spirit of God working through the perfect king of the sheep. And then on the seventh, it'll intensify. There'll be a Rosh Hashanah, an announcement that the atonement of our God is coming. And then the kingdom of the world falls to the kingdom of priests. What did Peter call you? That's right, he called you a kingdom of priests. Not everybody in Jericho dies. Who did those spies go and find? The wealthy, right? No, not the wealthy. They went and found the politicians, right? No. They found the men of power, right? No, they found a whore. A whore with faith. A whore who realized that her life was not going the way she wanted and she would give up her battle plan for God's. So out of the entire kingdom of the world, one prostitute and her household got saved because they were marked with a scarlet cord. Tell me that's not beautiful. How will you go to war, saints? In your own battle plan? God won't go with you. How will you go to war 
You'll march with the people of God, but you'll do it your way. He can't use you. There is but one way to see the kingdom of the world fall. You have to be filled with the Ruach HaKodesh. And you have to be hollow of yourself. You must decrease that He might increase. You must become His mouthpiece, saying what He says, doing what He does. The rest is just confusing. When you have fresh water come out of the same spigot as salt water, it is confusing. People don't know what to think of you and you muddy the gospel. It's time to sound a clear call. It's time. They do this. They march around Jericho. It's interesting to note, I don't I got just a few minutes, so at this point I'm just I'm giving you what we would call in Louisiana Lanyard. We have Adam born a thousand years later, we have somebody on the scene. Do you have any idea? About a thousand years later, a great man of God who's on the scene? Hmm? Noah. Noah. We might call that day one, huh? About a thousand years after Noah, we have somebody on the scene. Abraham. By the way, did Noah sound a clear call? How many people were saved? Eight in all. It's always a remnant. Abraham, father of the faithful. His whole life sounds a clear call. A thousand years after him, somebody else lived. It's amazing these names come to you, huh? David. Did David's life sound a clear call? Maybe more than any other. Redemption created me a clean heart. The shepherd who would become king. By the way, Abraham, uh, Genesis 22, there's a king of the sheep caught by his crown in sin, in thorns. On this mountain I will provide. It's that mountain that Jesus was crucified on. It's in the region of Moriah. Day four. I'm sorry, 4,000 years I met. 4,000 years from Adam. Did anybody show up and sound a clear call? Oh, that's, that's right. A guy named Jesus. What about day five? Well, I don't know. That's still up for debate. Who will be day six? Maybe somebody in this room? Where will you be on day seven? See, there is a period that is finite that we're calling time. God started us in darkness and He's moving us towards light. Every day, we go from evening to morning a day. A certain number of these things will go by and then it is time for the kingdom of the world to fall. You were either on God's team or you weren't. You need to decide. You need to get out of the valley of Jehoshaphat decision and choose your side. In Kings 18, Elijah stood before the people of God and he said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If Baal is God, go serve him. But if God is God, if Yahweh is God, then serve him. It's time for the excuses to fade away. It's time to quit blaming parents. It's time to quit blaming the church that did you wrong. It's time to grow up, be the men and women of God we were called to be, and live with His battle plan in our hearts. Can you all say amen to that? I could preach about that forever, but I think it's probably time that we go baptized. We're going to get sprinkled on the way. Uh Amen. Y'all stand to your feet. We'll pray.
Steve, right after we pray, everybody will disperse. Tell me our plan of attack. We're all going to your house. We need to be there by about... We're all going to meet at Steve's house around 1.30. You can follow me there. Uh, we're bringing food, each one of us. We're bringing our drinks and a towel if you want to swim. Oh, when you're baptized, uh, be mindful of your attire. Okay? Yeah. We had a bad experience with that one time. Uh, Amen. Of course you can. Of course you can. We're saying that the baptism is going to start at 1.30 is what we're saying. Okay. Y'all love the Lord? Y'all still love me after I even tell you these things? Okay. I can't tell you how important it is to be reconciled with one another. I can't tell you how important it is to live at peace with each other. The hardest times in your life to hear from God is when... You have built a wall between you and your neighbor which allowed a ceiling between you and God. Take some time to get your hearts right. Hear from God. Say, Lord, I'm throwing away my battle plan today. What is it that you want from me? I'll go with you where you'll go. Through the Jordan, circumcised, or into the enemy's camp without a sword. I'll do it. And then whatever you get along the way, Jericho was the only city that God said you can't take any of the plunder. The only one. You know why? He was not interested in a gospel of gain. The story in Jericho is not that the people got rich. The story in Jericho is that God overcame them by His Spirit. Let's pray.